The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. And let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. For us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Well, most of us uh, know that idle meat is not that big of a deal. Uh, neither is, is exorcisms, really. We don't really worry about demon possession uh, uh, today. At least we don't think we need to. Although, when you think about it, we do have a lot of temples uh, where, where we, we've, we've established some foreign deities. I, I made a, a brief list. Uh, for instance, Wall Street. How's your stock portfolio? Uh, the White House, Capitol Hill, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, any university, uh, the billion-dollar stadium that your favorite team plays in, uh, the movie theater. How about our hospitals and clinics? We can deify our doctors. Our churches. I wonder how many sacred cows we've crafted there. Uh, our relationships, our marriages, our, our children, our friendships, all basically being these temples, all of them that come with their own idol food, uh, these, these things that, that some of us see as off-limits and others crave beyond anything else and eat freely. Uh, some of us don't worry about those things. Others uh, fear offending someone or, or offending God, maybe. Well, in Corinth, you had a divided church. You had the strong and the weak. The, the strong ones, they knew things. That's what Paul tells us here in verse 1 of our, our, of our second reading, our epistle reading. He, he says, all of us possess knowledge. He's basically quoting the strong. They know things. They understand things. They're enlightened. And in that knowing has come this, this freedom, this freedom from the past, this freedom from past sin, this freedom from, from shame, from all these other things uh, to which they, they're celebrating their life in Christ. And, and they understand that idols are nothing. They, they even are quoted again by Paul in verse 4. No idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. So that the strong know their catechism. They're, they're confessing properly. They know the creed. And they saw in their liberality, their liberty, the key to the good life. They were enjoying whatever it was that God gave to them. But at the same time, they would look down upon the weaker as unenlightened, 
as maybe backwaters, as, as those who, who, who don't understand and need to be educated. And then you have the weak, the, the weaker brother. These, these feared offending God, they, they would be the ones who would assume demon possession or, 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 or uh, connections to a world beyond this one where there is good and evil at war with one another. And they saw in the eating of that meat in the temple as a participation in the, in the idolatry that was taking place there. Because you see, what would happen at the temples would be people would bring their animal to be slaughtered in, in a religious form and they would enjoy eating the food together. There would be dining rooms or even cafes connected to the temples. Uh, meat markets where the excess meat would be sold because they didn't have refrigeration. Uh, and so you'd need to eat the meat or preserve it rather rather quickly. And often there would be festivals where, where the wealthy would have a lot of animals that need to be slaughtered and, and they'd have a festival for a particular god. And so that meat would be sacrificed and, and poor and rich alike would be able to come and eat. But they saw in that a burden upon their conscience, feeling that they were sinning by, by eating that meat that had been sacrificed in that temple. And their, their concerns are well-founded. Their concerns are well-founded because they would look at that meat and it's been offered to a foreign god, basically bringing that cow or, or, or goat or guinea pig or whatever, it doesn't matter, brought to that temple, to that god, and you would sacrifice it to that god, basically giving thanks to that god for the provision of that meat, of the provision of that animal, the care provided during that time. Can you see a problem there? Turning thanksgiving over to a foreign god, to a pagan god, to, to an idol that quote-unquote does not exist. You're not giving thanks to the god, the one god who provides us all things. They'd also be concerned about whether or not uh, a tithe was given, whether, whether something was given back to the church or given back to the synagogue, and instead just everything was devoured without giving thanks by offering back some. And then also there'd be concerns about how it was slaughtered. Think of kosher or halal uh, slaughtering today. There'd be concerns about whether it was done properly because even in Acts 15, the, the Council of Jerusalem says that the, the guidance given to Gentile Christians was to avoid blood. And so it was this call to try and, and live the dietary life. Well, the strong would look at that and they'd say, well, that's all foolishness. That's foolish. We know that there is only one God through whom we receive all things. We know that the idols are nothing. So yeah, some priest gave thanks to some made-up thing, but you can still give thanks in your heart. Or, or we know whose we are, and so we offer ourselves completely to God. So who cares whether this pagan priest offered a tithe? And then, oh, by the way, verse 8, food will not bring us closer to God. Paul quotes them here. So you're no worse off whether you eat or you don't. Either way, you're good. But what has happened? Just as there are the burdens that are brought by the weak upon the strong, then the strong and their freedom, that freedom becomes an idol. It becomes a litmus test. How many of us in these last few months around this COVID time have heard, don't you have enough faith? Right? Don't you have enough faith? Why do you wear a mask? Why don't you come to church? Why isn't church open? All these things. Don't you have enough faith? Or, well, don't you love your neighbor? These pictures painted 
about us, around us, upon us. This, this real Christian debate. And all it becomes is just neo-fundamentalism. Whether you have the right political party or not, or, or you go to the right church, or you, or you wear the right things, or whether we use wine or grape juice in communion, whether we drink alcohol or not, whether we go to bars or not, whether we're masking up or not, or whether church is reopened or not, whether we send our kids to public school or we homeschool them, what music we listen to, the words we use, the books we read, the TV and movies we watch, how often we come to church, what our spirituality looks like between Sundays, how much we give to the church or to other ministries. And it doesn't matter, left or right, progressive, conservative, all of us have that fundamentalist streak. We have that checklist, we have that box, we have those fundamentals that we have to tick off and say, well, you're a real Christian if. And all of that becomes a burden. All of that becomes something that weighs upon us, that causes us to stumble, that causes us to fall, that destroys us, as Paul says here in verse 11, so by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. Because we tend to think of sin, the need for the forgiveness of sins, the unburdening of consciences, as, as Luther would talk about it. We think of it as some little thing that we do, whether we eat idle meat or not. But no, it's this, this weighing upon us of judgment and pain and shame. Well, let me take it down a different road. I'm going to twist it just a little, but it's going to be staying in the same realm. We are, as human beings, frail. We are, as human beings, sinful. The, the scriptures tell us this. We are, by nature, sinful and unclean. That's, that's an old confession we used to have. We have this sin nature, or, or what Luther would call the old Adam, that goes all the way back to the garden, uh, Genesis chapter 3, where we were lied to, told if we ate of the fruit, our eyes would be opened, we'd become like God, and we'd know good and evil. Well, what ended up happening? We were actually made blind. Yes, we could see what we perceive to be good and evil in others, but we never see ourselves. We can see the failings and frailty of others, but we never have that mirror turned upon us unless God comes and turns it. And so there's part of the reason why all throughout the Gospels we hear of Jesus coming and healing blind men. Those stories are there for a purpose. Or Saul on the road to Damascus, who eventually becomes Paul, gets knocked off his horse by a bright light and Jesus shows up and he gets blinded. And then when he gets healed of his blindness, it talks about these scales falling from his eyes as though, as though a veil was being torn away. And then we get a chance to read his letter to the Corinthians, his first one, or letter to the Romans, where he talks specifically about his own sins, about his own pains. But what ends up happening for us with our sin nature is that what we see in others is normally what we wish they were. Never who they are, or never who we are. When I do premarital counseling, one of the first things that we do, besides sitting down and hearing about their love story and the whole Hallmark moment and all those things, the snow and the, and the ring and the you know, sea otters and whatever else were used for the, for the proposal video that made it onto Instagram, we sit down and we do the family tree. We take a look at their two families. We talk about those things. 
because we are composed, whether we like it or not, we are composed of the sins and wins of our life, both ours and those of our parents, grandparents. And so we take those family trees then and we start talking about things like money and work and time and intimacy and children and spirituality and how those things have been formed by our past, how those things have been formed by the family that we grew up in. Because what frustrates us about our parents or what frustrates us about our spouse is normally the result of what has molded them over time. What has turned them into the person that they are through their parents, their family. And it's the same for us. And so we we have an image in our mind of what kind of father we want and then we look at our father and we say, why can't you be the dad I want? Never wondering, well, what kind of dad did he have? that made him this way. Never wondering that maybe he's the weaker brother. Or looking to our spouse, why can't you be more affectionate? Never thinking about how affection was shared within the family and, and so, so, so not understanding maybe how affection is shared by this person. Or maybe... We can't afford that. Why do you keep spending money like a drunken sailor? Right? Because there's often two individuals that can both grow up in poverty and one, they'll get their paycheck and they will go and splurge on the, the cheese counter at Byerly's, spend all their money as quickly as possible because they never had anything and so once they get something, they want to have that stuff. And then you have the other person growing up in a similar circumstance who hoards everything because they, wor- they worry that they might go back to not having anything. How our lives form those things. And so what ends up happening is, well, mother like daughter, father like son. We have often received the best and the worst of ourselves from the best and worst of others that are in our lives. Well, what does this have to do with idle food? Well, Paul, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he, he pits knowledge versus love. He pits what we think we know, what we think we understand about some, someone or something, and he pits that against mercy. He pits that against grace. He pits that against forgiveness. These things that try to allow that person, that, that those issues, those, those past sins to fall away because of Christ. Because more often than not, we decide something about someone, about other people, people in our lives, and with that decision comes judgment, and then we lose something. That thing that we lose is their humanity, who they are, their individuality, by, by making their past, their sins, Something that needs to be overcome by their own will or our own will that will change them or they will change them rather than realizing that they have to be crucified with Christ just like we do. And maybe more often than not, as Christ tells us that we have to pick up our cross daily and follow him, sometimes our own sins but also the sins of those in our lives have to become that cross that we bear with Christ to Calvary so that they can be crucified again and wiped out and destroyed by his blood shed for us. Eventually our freedom, our law, this law that we create for ourselves, can often replace Jesus. 
in which we hammer away at the lives of those around us. We, we basically become speck-seeking missiles. You remember that, right? We, we, we look for the speck in our neighbor's eye when we have this gigantic tree trunk just dangling there off our face, looking for the little things in other people when we have our own pains and shame and sins that we bear. Because never mind that we ain't a gold mine of virtuosity, piety, of love. And so then we eventually deny our brotherhood and sisterhood with our fellow believers. We deny our joint childness in the kingdom. We deny the connection that we have based on a crucified Jesus. Roy Harrisville, who's a longtime Lutheran theologian, teacher, talks about this when he's commenting on this this passage and specifically on, on verse 11. So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed, those weak brothers or sisters. And he talks about how that, that when we do that, we, we start to deny the relationship that we have with one another as, as fellow brothers, as fellow children of God that, that kneel at the cross of Christ. And we make ourselves, in his words, as master of another's conscience, telling them what is good and what is bad by what he calls playing God for the other. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, playing God. And what that ends up doing is that, he says, it it denies the universality of our condition that we are the weak brothers all the time. All the time. And then we deny also the commonality in our joint destiny, he says, that was achieved through the work of Christ on the cross through the redemption of ourselves in him. And then eventually we just deny the event altogether and maybe even deny Christ from one another. Because then we lose the, the sight, the fact that we are that weaker brother, that weaker sister. We lose that. That we are the one for whom Christ died that our freedom that we have in Christ should just become a vehicle by which we might remind all our siblings, the the weak, the the so-called strong, that even the weakest among us is no more or less a sinner than we are. Because we have to come back to that verse 6 that we read right at the beginning here. For us, there is one God, meaning I'm not it, and neither of you. That we have a Father, from whom are all things, meaning he gives us all things, and for whom we exist, meaning that we were made according to his pleasure, for his glory. Now we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. No other lords, no strong brothers standing over us telling us what to do. But it is through Christ that all things came into existence, that he is that word spoken back in Genesis 1 where it said, let there be light, and there was light, and so too then he's going to go around and make new creations, take weaker brothers and sisters and crucify them and give them life in himself. Because it's through whom, this one, this Jesus, that we exist. And with that, we say thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.